Many of us have been blessed to discover that the study of philosophy is key for developing our children's minds. But Dr. Sam Nicholson is here today to help us understand the role of philosophy in the spiritual life. Welcome to Homeschooling Saints, the podcast that helps you create the homeschool you love for the people you love. Our host is Lisa Maladnik, a Catholic life coach, TV host, best-selling author, and an instructor at Homeschool Connections. Before we get started, remember to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you're watching on YouTube, click the bell to join our channel. Hello and welcome. I'm Lisa Maladnik. Our topic today is the role of philosophy in the spiritual life, and I'm excited to welcome our guest. Dr. Sam Nicholson is a homeschooling dad with five children, three of whom are school age. Dr. Nicholson earned his BA in philosophy from Hillsdale College, his MA from Western Michigan University, and his PhD from the University of Virginia. He has published in several peer-reviewed articles and has taught at the university level for over 10 years. He currently teaches philosophy and logic for Homeschool Connections and works maintenance and facilities at St. Thomas Aquinas Parish in Charlottesville, Virginia. He's an Aristotelian Thomist and a convert to Catholicism, and his areas of scholarly interest are the philosophy of science, philosophy of language and mind, and 20th century analytic philosophy. You can find Dr. Nicholson at Homeschool Connections and our previous episode with him about philosophy's importance in in educating our children. Uh, You really need to check out his courses. Welcome to the program, Dr. Nicholson. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks. Just to get everybody on the same playing field, would you give us a basic definition of what philosophy is before we start to branch out into other areas? So, so the definition I'm going to give you is a little bit of a throwback, and so I'm going to out myself as a hopeless retrograde, but I regard uh, philosophy as a science. So it's not a science in the sense of being that we do experiments or collect data, but it's nevertheless a form of rational inquiry. And so we ask very basic and fundamental questions about the nature of reality, such as uh God's exist questions concerning God's existence in nature, the scope and limits of human knowledge, the nature of value, the right political order, and the tools that we use are uh, just basic observations of things in, in a way that we don't have to have any kind of fancy equipment for, and we use demonstrative arguments, and we use counter arguments, and we apply logic and reason to these kinds of conceptual problems. And I see it as just a very basic kind of demonstrative science about the basic structure of reality. Mm. And, and it's such a good workout for the mind, just helps us all to think clearly about things. So when we think about philosophy as being a rational science, how does that connect us to our spiritual life? Yeah. Well, there are a couple of different avenues from which we can approach this. And the one that I want to start with is just the tension between faith and reason. So uh, we often treat these as antitheses in our culture, and we are rational animals. We have a desire to know things, and we have a desire to understand, and we have a very difficult time, I think, compartmentalizing our spiritual lives from our rational understanding of how the world works. 
And uh, if we go around with the idea that the two don't have anything to do with one another, or that we have to believe things in the domain of religion that do not make sense or are contrary to reason, the, the inevitable result is that we're going to walk around in a state of cognitive dissonance. And that's not a very comfortable place to be. That's not what it means to be a whole and integrated person, because our rational and our spiritual are just aspects of who we are as one person, and we can't walk around divided in this way. The other uh, area in which it might impact our faith life is the seriousness with which we try to practice our faith. And I know that uh, for many people, whether they acknowledge it or not, we, we carry around a basic understanding that we cannot be held responsible for things that we do not know, right? So, that, so it's as if I am off the hook if the truths of religion are speculative and one person's opinion is as good as any other. And invariably, that's going to have a, a bad effect on our faith life because the seriousness with which we try to practice our religion is going to be conditioned in part upon whether or not we think we really know that it's true. Mm. And so I think that all too often we think of uh, religious faith as a kind of irrational will to believe that which is fundamentally irrational. And I, and I think that we, we really need to, to get beyond this, this uh, conception of, of how faith and reason intersect with one another. Mm, yeah, I, I see this as being, you know, and because we're dealing with mysteries so often with the faith, as being something that helps us to see almost in two directions at once, which is to be able to see the reasonableness of our faith on the one hand, but then to take what we believe and then see everything with new eyes. So we we look through reason and, and then we take what we know and we believe. And of course, there are leaps of faith involved, but in a reasonable way, we then use that as a lens for understanding the world around us. Yeah, and so, so to say of something that it is a mystery is not to say that it is absurd. And I think that we have to realize that the church does not ask us to believe things that we know are not true. And many people will seem to think that that's what it means to make to lay claim to something like a mystery. So it's not irrational to believe that there are facts about God's nature that transcend anything that we're going to be able to penetrate with our limited intellects. Uh, but that by itself is not something that is contrary to reason, right? We know that there are aspects of just ordinary natural reality that are resistant to, to a full understanding. Uh, and so the, that by itself doesn't mean that we have to believe things that are irrational. And I think that uh, all too often the language of mystery is used as a way of trying to keep attempts at forging a deeper understanding at bay. It's as if we, we want to adopt a kind of quietism and simply uh, not ask any, any, any questions of a philosophical bent when we arrive at certain topics. Yeah, I think we have such a fear of heresy or people going their own way that there actually have been times in the history of the church when um, it's it, it hasn't really been encouraged that we go too deep on our own with these ideas. This idea that 
Well, we want to be humble and understand that God is greater than we can understand, just as you said, in the physical world. We might not fully understand time, for instance, uh-huh. but, um, but that doesn't mean that our minds aren't given to us to, to make us explorers and pilgrims on these conceptual levels as well, to really be able to, you know, voyage out into these deep ideas and, and meet God there. Yeah, and and you mentioned, for example, the fear of heresy. And one thing that I can say is that being Catholic, uh, I have come to better understand certain philosophical questions, in part because I already know what some of the answers must be. There are these guardrails that are put in place by the magisterium, and I know that uh, certain truths about God have been affirmed by the councils and by some of the church fathers. And as far as I'm concerned, that means I need to accept them. But once I have that uh, set in stone, then I'm at liberty to pursue different ways of trying to understand that and make it comprehensible. So I see the limitations on inquiry that are placed by orthodox teaching not as an impediment to understanding, but actually as a guardrail and something that facilitates understanding. And so I know very many people that are outside of the Catholic tradition and don't have the resources that we do, and they do philosophy and they do all kinds of uh, you know, inquiry and dabbling into theology. But what I find is that they're continually having to fight battles over first principles And they're always starting from scratch. And the kinds of intellectual systems that that they construct, I mean, they're they're all over the map. They don't don't hang together in a principled way. And they're clearly the product of one person's attempted understanding. And when you have the entire tradition of Catholic teaching in the great minds like Augustine and Aquinas to draw from as resources, then you have a much better way of approaching it in in that you can forge a comprehensive understanding. And it's not just taken from one person's idiosyncratic opinions about something, but rather you have this rich and deep tradition that hangs together in a way that is indicative of truth, in my opinion. Mm, Yeah, that's such a good way to think of it as guardrails, because there's so much in the human spirit that needs cornerstones, needs a framework. And we have this incredible rich history in the church that provides that, as as you've said. Um, Would you just give us some examples of what do you mean by a first principle? So a first principle uh, might be something that is a starting point of inquiry. Uh, but is not itself contested. Okay. So, so oftentimes you'll hear philosophers talk about things that are, that are either evident or self-evident. And what we mean typically is that these are things uh, that are so basic that to simply understand them is to come to a recognition that they must be true. So one example of this might be that a thing cannot be and not be simultaneously in the same respect. Now, that may seem like a kind of trivial truth, and some people would argue that it is, uh, but in fact, it by itself is, an, is enough to, to start to limit the field and to sort of push our inquiry in a particular direction. Uh, then there might be things that are simply evident to the senses, such as the fact that things change. 
and it may and once again that may not seem like it's very much uh but it's actually the basis for uh aquinas's most cogent proof for god's existence is reflection upon the fact that things change and uh if you look at for example what's called the thomist philosophy of nature it is a kind of demonstrative science that is based upon just ba this basic observation that there are causal regularities in nature, that things change, that there are certain kinds of order that are present and manifest, you know, in our experience. And using reason and reflection, you can extend our understanding of that and penetrate further than just what is manifest to our experience. Mm. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. It's it's like setting up some intellectual guardrails in a sense, so that we're not chasing rabbit holes or they're sort of fallacious or, or uh, whatever kind of out out of the field that we want to play on. Um, when we think about using philosophy in order to grow closer to God, um, how do you sort of how do you set yourself on a on a clear path? In other words, we think about closeness to God as or intimacy in emotional terms, oftentimes, um, or you know, or in a spiritual sense, you know, sort of in as you mentioned, insights and inspirations, things like that. What's the track we run on with philosophy in actually growing closer to God? Well, there are many ways in which we can lean upon philosophy to, to draw closer to God. But one way in, in which it comes out, at least that takes in my own life, is through the process of discernment. So I think many people view discernment as a process of self-reflection or introspection, where you're looking for some kind of insight directly from, from God or some kind of inspiration. And I think that you can see that there's a very robust tradition of using practical reason as a discernment tool so that there are certain things that we can just reflect upon, such as the fact that I am a father, the fact that I have a job, the fact that I have certain duties, that these by themselves already limit right, the possibilities in terms of what God wants for me so that I don't have to go on this fruitless journey of self-discovery where I'm introspecting and waiting on some kind of flash of insight to decide what I'm supposed to do with myself. I can simply look at my present circumstances and I can see that the will of God is already manifest, right? And just through reason and reflection upon what are my duties in the present moment, I already have discerned quite a lot about what I should and shouldn't do in that case. Yeah, it's and great so to you, think about. And when you think about how much of our spiritual lives is supposed to be oriented around, you know, what is God's will for us? Well, that's all, that, that, can, that can translate into an awful lot of time and energy and worry in some cases. Yeah. We can simply rest and know that we are doing what we are supposed to be doing, absent any special revelation to that effect, uh, then that's a great consolation, and it frees us up to do certain things, such as pursue family life, to pursue prayer life, um, and then to, to pursue our present duties with a sense that we are acting in the way that God wants us to act. Yeah. Yeah, it's so good because you, it, you're back to reality again. What is my state in life? What are my current God-pleasing uh, obligations and duties here. And it also can take us, uh, as part of that framework, the Ten Commandments. Like so often, 
you know, some often when people are discerning a vocation, they're casting about oftentimes in that realm of the the spiritual, emotional connection with God, and that's perfectly fine. But but the preparation to know the will of God is already laid out. Thou the thou shalt and shalt nots, you know that interconnected um, framework that we've been given for how it is that we walk with God, and then once we're in motion walking with God within that call or within our state and life, then God can steer that moving boat. If we keep showing up every day to where we've already said yes to God and made our commitments and dropped anchor in the moral life, um, then things can start to become more clear. Um, Are there particular genres of philosophy that we should be looking at uh, as far as uh, what we might study to help us in this quest to know God better? Well, you can't go wrong with uh, any of the great, you know, doctors of the church. And I would recommend in particular St. Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas. I think that those are both, uh, I mean, th- those two by themselves are enough to, to occupy somebody for a lifetime. I also think it's helpful to read secondary literature. And the reason why is because without a competent guide, many of the things that these philosophers say are going to be difficult to make sense of. And uh, it's not that you will not get anything out of reading them, but you'll get so much more if you can find a reliable secondary source to use as a help and as a guide, simply because there are terms that are used that will be opaque to you. There are uh, bits of you know, context that will be missing when you pick up a, a book like the Summa and try to read it cold. And I really wish that I had, uh, you know, had the humility as, as a younger man to to have allowed myself to, to to sit and just listen to what somebody else said, right? As opposed as opposed to trying to plow through it on my own and forge my own private understanding. Yeah. Um, if I don't know if this is something you'd want to do off the top of your head or if we can follow up and put it in the show notes, Dr. Nicholson. But if you have particular secondary resources that you think would be a good starting place for parents so that we can start to break these ideas down for our children and invite them into the conversation, um, we'd certainly love to have your short list of favorites. Well, I can, I can get to work compiling that. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Thank you. And we'll definitely I'll, I may that. have a little bit of difficulty narrowing it down, but yes, I'll, I'll, I'll be happy to send that to you. Yes, we know we're talking with an enthusiast who has read very widely. Uh, if you can think of some ways to can find the most accessible ones for us as a starting place, and then maybe have a short B list of if we really want to level up and, and dive even deeper, that would be really helpful. Yeah. So, yeah. So with your children, what are you doing at this point with young children, Dr. Nicholson, to start to lay the groundwork for this kind of thinking in the way they're entering into the spiritual life? Well, a, a lot of it just uh, is answering questions and trying to be as honest and forthright as possible about certain things. And I think that there are many things that people will figure out on their own through experience if they're simply guided in the right way. And I think that that's actually true of most people is that we actually know, we actually understand more than we can articulate. And sometimes what we need is help articulating. Mm, yeah. And when we learn how to do that, to put it into words and to come up with a very precise way of saying what we're thinking and feeling, 
that by itself can become a prompt to deepen our understanding of things. Yeah, yeah, it really helps to have a vocabulary. And the vocabulary itself helps us to understand something better, but it also sharpens the way our minds work around the understanding of those terms. It actually helps us to put handles on things that we might really be out of our grasp intuitively. We might have a mm -hmm. sense, but we might not be able to express it. Yeah, and, and, and it may even be that it modifies our understanding of something. So I'm, I'm thinking, you know, here uh, about coming to a, a theological understanding, for example, of what envy is. Okay, so that we realize that it's thinking that another person's good is somehow an impediment to my own. And I know that there have been occasions where, uh, just even recently, where I thought about something that I had done uh, or said, and it dawns on me that, that that was motivated by envy. And it's not something that I would have thought, I would never have thought to call it that had I not had a kind of philosophically informed understanding of what it is, because I would have thought of it as just something like malice or just sort of baseless antipathy towards another person, uh, when, when in reality, it's something very specific. And when the kind of clarity that you get from philosophical theology, such as giving it a clear definition, right, for starting, for starters, right, that it's, you know, perceiving another person's good as an impediment to your own, or uh, experiencing pain at the fact of another person's good, then it, it, then, it, then it puts you on the hook, because you realize that, you know, there are things that I might think are perfectly justified or feel are perfectly justified that are nevertheless, if I'm honest with myself, rooted in envy. And that can become uh, a basis for, again, discernment. And it can also uh, be, be something that, that gives us self-knowledge, not of the kind of useless navel-gazing sort, but something that we can then say, okay, this is, a, this is part of who I am. This is not good and it needs to be changed. But as they say in uh, the recovery world, the first step is recognizing that you have the problem. And sometimes just being able to call it what it really is uh, is the is the you know prelude to that first step, and I think that very often uh, intellectual confusion leads to self deception because we tell ourselves that we're not doing some of the things that we're really doing, or we use euphemisms when we really ought to know better. Mm, this is so rich because so many of the saints said that um, self knowledge is a big first step on the path of sanctification. And we can use this refined understanding of these very common human foibles to not only understand ourselves, but prepare ourselves uh, for the sacrament of confession. What a beautiful way to link to out into the practical, that once we understand these things, and we understand that they've been defined because they are common human uh, <laughs> stumbling blocks, and that there's a richness even to that connection humanly, can, I think, encourage us that there's a lot that has gone before us uh, on this terrain. We're not alone, and there's nothing weird about us because sometimes we we think another person's good takes away from our own good. Yeah, and, and you you mentioned uh, confession there, and and I know that um, there have been many times where I would be in the midst of confession, and just thinking it through, I realized, you know, that that's, I, I need, I need to be clear about what it is that I'm 
that I've that I've done here, and and not that I was intending to withhold something, but that I think, oh my goodness, I, I'm making a connection here that this is that sin, right? And so that then it becomes something tangible and con and something tangible that I can express in words, and the 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 beauty of it is then I'm in a position to be freed from it, and so uh, that that is an experience that I think uh, many people would be, would benefit from because, you know, you hear sometimes priests will talk about, um, you know, the importance of not confessing other people's sins, the importance of not confessing tendencies or feelings. And re really, again, this is the kind of thing that you can reflect upon and see why this would be. I mean, our feelings are outside of our control to some large extent. They're in co-weight. They often don't take an object in the way that a thought does. And so there, there can be occasions where, for example, I feel very badly about something or I feel anger, but then I realize I haven't acted upon it. So what is it that I'm gonna confess? I'm gonna, I'm gonna confess simply having, a, having, a, having an icky affect on the inside? No, I'm not gonna confess that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna look for something else. And so just having the kind of vocabulary that can, can make, make these sorts of distinctions, it's, it's invaluable because there are so many aspects of our spiritual lives that touch upon morality and touch upon our virtues and vices. And we really are up a creek without a paddle. We don't have the vocabulary to call things by their proper name so that we can get a handle on it and then begin to look at what saints and blesseds and other people in the tradition of the church have said about this particular matter. And if I don't know that it falls into this category, then how am I going to look for what other people have said about it? Mm, that's such a great distinction because so often we can get um, kind of tumble into scruples if we don't know quite what is a sin and what isn't. And that provides, as philosophy does, <clears throat> great clarity. I know that your time is limited, Dr. Nicholson. I appreciate you so much. Is there any final thought you'd like to leave with us? Uh, yeah, I, I would just encourage everyone to uh, challenge yourself by picking up some some work of theological or philosophical significance and just try it, right? It's, it's a little bit like asking someone who doesn't, you know, it's for some people, it may be like asking a person who doesn't exercise to just do 10 jumping jacks, say. Uh, but, you know, sometimes you just have to make yourself do it. And, and I think that uh, very few people would not benefit from more exposure to, to ideas in this way. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Nicholson. And I will pester you about that list and appreciate you so much. Everybody stay tuned for our short feature coming right up. Hi, I'm Dave Palmer, a professor of philosophy at Homeschool Connections. I teach a class called An Introduction to the Summa Theologia by St. Thomas Aquinas. And today, in this lesson, we are going to talk very briefly about St. Thomas Aquinas' teaching on the human person in the Summa Theologia, human nature. It's what we are, human beings. And so Thomas spends a lot of time in the first part of the Summa kind of explaining what makes us unique, what makes us special compared to the other creatures that are out there. So 
we look around and we see that there are a lot of different creatures out there. Things as simple as rocks, which are inanimate, which means they don't have a soul. They're just kind of there. They're still a creature though, right? And then as we rise through the levels of complexity, we have things like plants and flowers and trees. And St. Thomas Aquinas says they have souls, but they are vegetative or nutritive souls. And then there's other creatures that are a little bit more complex, like birds and insects and snakes. They have what Thomas calls a sensitive soul. And then there are angels that don't have souls at all. They're pure spirit, just intellect and will. And then there is us. And we are very special because we have a soul, but we also have a rational soul. St. Thomas Aquinas also says, unlike the soul of the plant or the tree or the snake or the dog, our soul is subsistent, which means that when we die, our soul continues to exist. And I'll tell you more about that in just a moment. We have what's called kind of like three souls in one. He says the various souls are different, like the tree and the, the cat and the human being, but we have the vegetative soul, we have the sensitive soul, and we have the rational or intellectual soul, but all in one. We don't have three souls, we have one soul, numerically, as Thomas says. Our soul is vegetative, sensitive, rational, it's also appetitive, which has to do with the things that we desire, both through the will and also the sensitive uh, desires. And it's locomotive, which means our soul helps us to move around. A very interesting part of the Summa talks about how we come to know things. You know, we observe things all the time and we register it in our mind. Thomas says that we have a passive intellect, which has the potential to know all things like dogs and trees and grass. And then we also have an active intellect that actually goes out and kind of captures the essence of things. It's a really fascinating part of the Summa when he talks about what's called epistemology or the knowledge of things in the human being. All right, the passions of the soul. We have two types of passions. One is called concupiscible, and it's the things that we're attracted to, like banana splits, and also things that we're repelled from. So those, you know, like a grizzly bear, if you saw one, you'd probably run. That has to do with the concupiscible part of the soul. And then we also have what's called irascible passions. Okay, these are things like hope. Uh, you know, many people hope to graduate one day. We also have fears and we have despair, and we have anger. That would be an irascible passion as well. All right, so the passions and the rational part of our soul sometimes conflict with each other. I know they do for me when I go to a Mexican restaurant and they put the chips and salsa out in front of me and all of a sudden my body is saying, you know, eat them all. And my rational mind says, no, you gotta be temperate. Just eat, you know, five or six of them. And so we see that struggle that goes on uh, within our soul. And St. Thomas Aquinas definitely says that uh, even though we are um, products of providence and God's guiding all things to their final end, we have free will. Unlike those other creatures like the dogs and the cats and the crickets, we are able to, to some degree, choose our destiny. And then finally, uh, the last thing I'll mention is as I mentioned earlier, when we die, our soul separates from our body. So we no longer have a human being. We have a corpse and we have a separated soul, which flies off to heaven and has the particular judgment. But then even in heaven, that soul, that separated soul longs for the body. And that's why at the end time, we are taught through our Catholic faith that there is a resurrection of the body. The soul and the body unite again. And once again, we have a full human person that has body and soul because that's a very integral part 
of our nature. Hope you enjoyed this. This has been St. Thomas Aquinas' teaching in the Summa Theologia on human nature. I'm Dave Palmer. God bless you. And that's our show for today. Our program is sponsored by homeschoolconnections.com. Be sure to subscribe to Homeschooling Saints and leave us an honest review. God bless you and thank you for joining us.